everybody, and welcome to Books Unbound, the podcast where we unbind books to get to their hearts with your hosts, me, Ariel, and Raylene, who isn't here because this is a very special episode that I recorded with one of my favorite, and actually one of Raylene's favorite authors, A.S. King. We love A.S. King. (laughs) This podcast is a huge fan of A.S. King. We have been reading her books for, I mean, basically a decade now and just loving what she does and who she is. Before Books Unbound was the podcast that you and I now know and love, it was just little old me in my room on my own. And I knew I really wanted to do a book podcast, but I didn't have a co-host yet. And so I was brainstorming ideas and I thought, well, wouldn't it be really cool to review books with authors? That would be really cool. And so I reached out to A.S. King and I said, hey, your favorite book is God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater by Kurt Vonnegut, right? Do you want to reread it with me and, I don't know, talk about it on a podcast? And she replied back saying, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. So we did. But then the podcast kind of took on a new life. I started recording episodes with Raylene instead. And this beautiful episode that I recorded with A.S. King never came out. And I hate that. It's illegal. So this is what I am offering to you today, a special episode. I'd love to hear what you think of this. Um, It's obviously very different than what we usually do, but it was so much fun. A.S. King is definitely, she is genuinely one of my heroes. I look up to her so much and it was so fun to get to chat about her favorite book. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Check out A.S. King's latest book, Dig, which just won the Prince Award, which is so, so exciting. And I hope that you enjoy this. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Books Unbound with me, Ariel Bissett. And today I'm here with A.S. King. Hello, A.S. King. <laughs> Hello, Ariel. How are you doing today? I am doing great. And today we're talking about God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And I'm super excited to discuss what I believe is your favorite book. Yes? I, I believe it is, especially after this read. It, it has not lost its... It, it's changed in many ways for me, but um, mm. it's still my favorite book. Yes. I think that's so great. I read Animal Farm when I was, how old was I? Maybe 15. And it became my favorite book. I love that book. And whenever people ask me what my favorite book is, I say Animal Farm. But like a year will go by or two years will go by and I haven't read it. And I'm like, maybe it's not my favorite book. I don't know. And so I reread it and I'm like, of course this is my favorite book. (laughs) (laughs) This hasn't changed in quality at all. If anything, it's gotten better. Um, yes. So yeah. So and Animal, Animal Farm does that. And I, I can, I can, Ugh, to- so oh, I, and that's one of my favorites too. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that's your favorite book. Cause that's my awesome. my book ever. <laughs> um, and actually I think this book and Animal Farm are, maybe have some links. They do. Um, but we can talk about that later. But, um, yeah, so we're going to chat about this book. We're going to talk about why it's your favorite book and we're going to just go through it. So if you're ready to go. Let's jump in, and I'm going to ask you right up front the question I'm very curious to ask. Why is this your favorite book? I know, Um, huge question. It is a huge question, but, you know, it's kind of an easy answer, um, and there's no spoilers in this, which is cool, but um, Elliot Rosewater is my literary crush. I mean, some people go for the Mm. good-looking guys that are this or that or whatever, Mm -hmm. but... But Elliot Rosewater, from the minute I met him in this book, became my true literary crush. I think hot is in the brain. And so for me, Elliot's brain and his heart are just, are just 
Brilliant. Um, and I, I love how the story yeah. is told on a larger level. Okay. I love, I love the structure of the story. I love how Vonnegut, and this time I really, this read, I, I really got to kind of pull it apart and go, wow, the structure is really strange and yet it works. Um, and it may, mm. uh, it made me understand my own structures in my own books. Um, I think a little better because I don't know, I saw not a similarity, but I saw that he he doesn't give a crap if he goes off what seems like <laughs> off topic for like 40 it's pages. So true. It's so true. But it's not <laughs> off topic, right? So right. so so there's that. So I love the structure of it. I love the simplicity of it. It's an incredibly linear story though it is back forth back forth we go around into some history and all this. Mm-hmm. But it's very linear, very straightforward and to me without spoilers it all comes down to, you know, the, there's no there's no how do I say it? there's no he doesn't he's not holding his cards in the first sentence. He says a sum of money is a leading character in this tale about people, mm-hmm. just as a sum of honey might properly mm-hmm. be a leading character in a tale about bees. And then he goes mm-hmm. on to say the sum was eighty seven million four hundred and seventy two thousand thirty three dollars and sixty one cents on June first, nineteen sixty four. And so we know that 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 this this eighty seven million dollars is the leading character in this book. Right. Um and so for me, what's ultimately rewarding is is how, and I won't get on, I, I could read the whole first page to you because I actually the, the rest of the paragraph is really, into, actually I will, just for kicks. <laughs> Please. So the sum was 87 million, blah, 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 um, to pick a day. That was the day it caught the soft eyes of a boy shyster named Norman Mashari. And at that point, you know, by the end of that page, we know that Norman Mashari is this lawyer. He's a, a young lawyer in a firm, and he wants to figure out how to get that money. And so right. the whole thing that propels you through the book is what happens to the money? And so for me, why it's my favorite book is, without spoilers, what happens to the money um, and how it works out. So all of those things, all of those things. Yeah, I love the first line of this book, I yeah. think. I think it's really interesting. I love first lines. Um, I did a, when I was in university, I did a creative short writing or short story writing course. And we did like a whole section on first lines. Mm. And it's completely impacted the way that I think about like first lines. Like I just see so much resonance with them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love this. Like this is a tale about people, but then it's it's not, right? It's right. about money right away. Right. Like it's, a, it's an instant um like sarcasm right. and an instant contradiction. Um, I also, though, like to, to talk to Kurt Vonnegut's writing style. He says the sum was 87 million on June 1st to pick a day. Like it, it to me, it doesn't fill me with confidence that that is the day. <laughs> right. right. But right? then he goes on like, to explain that it earns 10 grand a day. Right. So I don't know. It's He has this whimsy. And like you said, like, um, I don't know. He just goes wherever he wants to go, and it's a yeah. little offhand, right? It doesn't yeah. feel very rehearsed, right. um, and almost like not edited. Although it clearly is edited to perfection, right? Like it's it like so well done. It is. It's it. There's just, you know, it's funny. I I I know Vonnegut's work pretty pretty in- intimately, and you know, it's hard to say favorite because I mean, Slaughterhouse Five has so much. Breakfast of Champions has so much. Um, and, and I just read Slaughterhouse-Five again last year. I'll read it again. Actually, I'm going to read it outside my, I'm going to read it aloud outside my independent bookstore on Armistice Day, um, in November oh, because cool. I said I would, cause I'm like, you know what? It'd only take me the eight whole to 10. Thing? Yeah. I'm going to try and do 10 to 12 wow. hours and just stand there and read the book from beginning to end. Yeah. 
I love that. I just, because I love reading. I love great. reading aloud. I yeah. love it. I actually, I'm not going to lie to you. I read almost the majority of this book out loud to my boyfriend. No way. I, and, and Yeah, in bizarre happenstance. Um, I was like, you know what? This is fun. I had read the first 50 pages to myself and I was like, this is fun. My boyfriend was playing a video game while I was reading and I was like, can I just read this out loud to you? And he was like, yeah, because I just kept reading quotations out to him, right? Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah. And I ended up reading the next 150 pages out loud. <laughs> it's, it's a great thing. And Vonnegut's fun out loud. Um, I have to say like he, he is because I was mm -hmm. the same. I was like, mm -hmm. I have to read this to you. I have to read this to you. Oh, and then I would, it would just be a paragraph that I'm like, no, no, yeah. let me read the next three pages to you. So, so, and Mr. King's heard this yeah, book out loud. It, we laughed a lot. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that's the thing about <laughs> Vonnegut. Like, he doesn't... I never felt like as much as I know about him as a person now, um, though I never met him, but what I've read about him, like, he was always so funny, cynical funny, but genuinely funny, but also kind of really cynical. Just, like, it's that disgust with civilization mm -hmm. quote. Do you know the one I mean? When he compares mm -hmm. Beethoven... Um, you know, and this is how I've been talking to a lot of student writers, um, is I should have it in front of me and then I'd be able to read it and not paraphrase it. But it's basically, you know, Beethoven was just hanging around in Germany and this stuff came gushing out of him and it was music. And um, I was just like and anybody else just hanging around in Indianapolis and this stuff came mm. gushing out of me and it was discussed with civilization. And right. that's one of my favorite quotes, totally paraphrased, but I think I'm close. Um, and... I think that's the one thing about Kurt that I love because in that disgust, he can find this humor and this lightness that is, I feel, Elliot Rosewater. I think Elliot Rosewater is the lightness in that way, right? Right, right. Kind of weird, but how cool. So you kind of mentioned that um, that it's a bit of, it's this reread, but like also other reads, I'm sure, have been a bit of an inspiration to your writing. Yeah. Um, and in my enthusiasm to jump into the book, I just didn't even mention that you're like my favorite young adult author. Hey, thanks. <laughs> um, and so I wonder, like, when you first read this book or other books by Kurt Vonnegut, because I've only also, I've read Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle. Okay. Um, but they, they do have this bizarre sense of reality and non-reality, which happens in your books, right? Mm -hmm. You have this magical realism. Would you say that that was taken from or like inspired by Kurt Vonnegut a little bit? I kind of would. And I think that's the perfect time to say, you know, that's why it's not magical realism. It's more this mm. stuff, whatever this is. It's not like right. he, he tended to go more sci-fi. And back in the, in the yeah. 60s, he was very wrongly and very often... Um, not respectfully, we'll say, put in the science fiction category um, mm -hmm. for his short stories, for his earlier work, um, and for the fact that, that the science fiction wasn't seen as this, re like this magic, uh, even though the, it was quite magical stuff that goes on. I mean, you know, Billy Pingram, Pilgrim becomes unstuck from time. Like, <laughs> like right. that's, that's how we start Slaughterhouse-Five. <laughs> so, so, so that immediately meant science fiction back then, which immediately meant mostly hacks. That's pretty much how people right. looked at science fiction. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a shame because so much of it was great. Um, not mm -hmm. just his, but, um, but so, yeah, I would definitely say I'm inspired by Kurt, but I'm also inspired by Tom Robbins. A lot of the stuff I've read in my early twenties, uh, so Vonnegut, Robbins, mm -hmm. and then like, I was probably 21 when I got my hands on my first Salman Rushdie. And mm. that is where I, and then Marquez Allende. So I did read a lot of magical realism, but I never, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a white chick. 
and I know I'm a white person and I'm, you know, I did live in, you know, Ireland, which is post-colonial and, and I think I, fe- I got the feeling of Irish magic, um, right. that mm-hmm. same sort of magical realism, you know what I mean? But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say that he, influ- he certainly influences me and he influences me in a way where um, you can kind of see it in his books. You said the word whimsy before and I love that and it, yeah. it's, it's whimsy with structure. I mean, whimsy yeah, is one thing. Yeah, that's why it's great. <laughs> right? But it's like suddenly he's just sitting there talking and he changes the subject to a totally different state, a totally different person and you think it's only going to be short, but like I said, no, you're 50 or that 60. That kept happening. Yeah, it's, that yeah. kept happening. <laughs> you're 60 pages in and you're like, oh, and you're really interested in this film and then it pops back. But I love that because he, if those weren't in those spaces, then we wouldn't have the whole story. So he clearly right. knew what he was doing and mm-hmm. I love that he didn't care whether we followed or not as readers. He's like, right. you know what, if you right. if you lose interest now, go buy a beach read, uh, you know, <laughs> or whatever he, you know, that's, and that, I felt like that was his attitude as a human, which is, you know, you know, he was entitled to in those days uh, and, and, and he earned it. He's Kurt Vonnegut. He can give crap. Right. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. At a certain point, um, right? Let's uh let's break into our spoiler section so that we can talk about whatever we want. Oh, good. Um, without fear of disappointing anybody. There are spoilers um, after this point, listeners. There yes, are spoilers exactly. after this point. <laughs> um. So okay, I wanted to ask you about, and this is very specific. It just I found it really interesting. I guess the question is, why do you think that Elliot is obsessed with fire departments? Um, and what do you think, why do you think it's interesting? Because, like, it comes through the novel constantly. He's always talking about fire departments and wanting to be a volunteer fire, uh, like, volunteer fireman. And he's constantly visiting these fire departments and talking to the people. He ends up being, like, the lieutenant or whatever of a fire department. Um, and then we find out his, like, tragic backstory, right? That he accidentally killed firemen. Yep. Um... And I think that's the reason. I think that's the reason. And I think, I think, uh, just to interrupt you completely and answer, it's funny. (laughs) There's a part where he's, remember toward the end, he's left um, Rosewater County and he's heading into Indianapolis. And he has what really is quite a hallucination. um, And very, it feels suddenly very PTSD. And again, you're in this sort Mm. of, you're sort sort of in this light, not light novel, but like this, comfortable novel and everything's going great and then Elliot's driving toward Indianapolis he can see the city in the in the, in front of him and it is a firestorm and right. of course knowing the Kurt and had, that's where he blacks out right and and knowing that Kurt had lived through the bombing at Dresden and what that was really like having read Slaughterhouse Five knowing that that story was still in him mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know I think that that any you know anybody who survives a fire bombing is going to be pretty much obsessed with fire but in, in it's funny because you asked me this and now I wish, oh, this is where I wish I could like just type in search and find, yeah. you know, a, a line or a thing because he does somewhere in there. Um, he was, well, he was made the mascot, right? Of, of yeah. the fire department in Ro- of Wa- Rosewater when he was young. Um, yes, when he was a kid and the, and the senator, his dad, yeah. regrets it. Like at some <laughs> point in the text, he says, I wish we'd never taken you to that fire department. Right. They like... I forget why he's like he's kind of like I feel like it filled you up with too much like joy and they were too nice to you and it was like almost too pure. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and um, that's that's what he thinks. Mm-hmm. I think that's where he thinks his his um, that Elliot's. I think the the senator thinks that Elliot's um, deep compassion 
comes from that. And and um, I yeah. just I found this one page. So give me a second. Um, Elliot was. Let me think. He was hitchhiking. This is on page twenty four, or at least of my copy. Mm. Yours is clearly old. Um, I actually bought a new copy for this. <laughs> I don't know where my old one is. Um, do you have the new purple one? Because yeah, I do, and it filled my purple book for for um for the reading. Oh, rush, so I was thrilled. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, but it's he says when you think about it, boys, that's what holds us together more than anything else, except maybe gravity. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers joined in the serious business of keeping our food, shelter, clothing, and loved ones from combining with oxygen. I tell you, boys, mm. I used to belong to a volunteer fire department, and I'd belong to one now if there were such a human thing, such a humane thing, in New York City. And I think that mm. that's that's right. his you know his idea that people go around putting out fires and they're volunteers is the most humane thing. Yeah. Um, and you know he's not wrong. Um, it's pretty yeah. freaking humane, all right. Um, so I don't, yeah. I don't know where it comes from. There's a quotation near the end that the senator says, or the dad says to him, he says, your devotion to volunteer fire departments is very sane too, Elliot, for they are, when the alarm goes off, almost the only example of enthusiastic unselfishness to be seen in this land. Yeah. Which yeah. is in just stark contrast to everyone in Elliot's life. <laughs> Including is, the senator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Including and it's, his it's, father, yeah. It's awful that he can say it, right? That the dad can say, like, I get why you love them. They're the best. Well, now here, I'll, enough of that. <laughs> I'll ask you a question then. Isn't Please. that an interesting thing? What does that make you, like, what political statement is Vonnegut making with that in 1964? Right. I mean, and that is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, too, which was, th like, this book was written in the early 60s, mm -hmm. or at least published in the early 60s. I guess you never know when things are written. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, so many of the passages <laughs> yep. were, were like, and this is, this is what happens to me with Animal Farm, Yep. right? Oh, so yeah. that one was written in the 40s. Any time I read Animal Farm or when I was reading this, I'm just like, we haven't fixed any of these problems. Nope. <laughs> like, we're going around in circles. Uh, one quotation here is, Noah Rosewater and a few men like him demonstrated the folly of the founding fathers in one respect. Those sadly recent ancestors had not made it the last of the utopia that, or, yeah, that the wealth of each citizen should be limited. Thus was the savage and stupid and entirely inappropriate and unnecessary and humorless American class system created. Yep. Um... <laughs> I read that one out loud too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I throughout the entire book, you're reading passages about, you know, basically. I mean, it is it is like as as far back as money will go, which is most of our uh, like our history that we talk about, right? Is mm. has money involved, and it's just a constant problem of who has money and who doesn't. But this book is tackling like. If you have money, what do you do with it? That's right. Which I think is an interesting angle on it. It is. I mean, it relates to my most recent novel, Dig. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. I did a, I did an interview with someone and they were trying to get me to, and it's very, it's a touchy kind of question, but I'm getting asked a lot about how can white people be more aware of their privilege? How can white people become like real allies how can we stop being so fragile how can we you know these sorts of questions and mm. and i start mm -hmm. to explain the the history of 
of um, the history of race in America, which is a strange way to put it, but American right. racial, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 singular. It it is completely American, um, and so I, I go through right. the, the racial part, which I won't go through now because that's not what we're talking about. But I get to the end and I say, what happened was, see, they pitted us against each other because of the money. They got us with the money, and everything's about the money. Right. And because it's about the money, well, and I actually just found that one quote, and, and I've just gone by it, but it's like, what is it? Um, the hell with you, Jack. I've got mine. Um, <laughs> where, you know, that's the idea, the the self-interest, right. you know? Um, and and that is, you know, the, the hell with you, Jack. I got mine. Um, and so on one side, you know, here I am, this person who's like I don't know health health insurance I don't know mortgage I don't know we'll see how it works and just keep mm. keep going keep going keep keep going and and he's living in a different time and here he's writing in a different time I should say in in 64 but in actual fact it's it's all about that I mean I loved his whole thing about the money river and everybody slurping at the money right. river oh, I mean, he went yes. through this I, that was one of my favorite passages right? that was so interesting and, yeah. and he goes on about slurping and then his father I think turns to him and says I don't remember slurping anything and it was just sort of like <laughs> uh, his name Dax and Guardians of the Galaxy he's like oh, if anything would go over my head I would surely catch it it was like no right. you're not getting it You yes you are slurping that's yeah. how you got your job that's how you got everything and you know, and I love that Elliot was born into that and can see it yeah. from that volunteer firefighter humane right. place. What a different right. character. I, I, honestly, a non-consumerist born into a massive consumerist family or a, a non-money guy or a, you know, born into this money family. And yeah. that is, that's fun because I, I relate to it. That's a mirror to me or, or. You know, mm. I relate to that because not because I was born into a family with money. I was not. I was born into a, a country and into a system that told me the most important thing was money. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. since I was very young, I was told this. And since I was very young, I've rejected it and didn't know what to do about it. So, of course, I moved to Ireland and gave up everything. Right. And you know what I mean? And, 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 and lived off the <laughs> land for the song. You know, I did all these things right. that made me feel like Elliot. I wanted to feel like yeah. Elliot. You know, yeah. I wanted, and I did, I volunteered all my time. I didn't make any money. I just volunteered. I just helped and helped and did things. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. It felt freaking great. It was awesome. And yeah. I would do it again in the morning, except I moved <laughs> back to America. And so now I have to worry about all this stuff, you know? <sighs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one, how you framed it is really helpful in thinking, because obviously this is written in the sixties. How do we frame it for now? And I think a way to pitch it is this is a story about a man born into insane privilege, who is the first person in his ancestry to recognize that privilege, to see the privilege, and to try and do something about it. And I think what's, like, really interesting about Elliot, and the reason that this is a fun novel, is that he doesn't really know what to do. Like, he, (laughs) it's one of those things where, like, you sometimes you see the problem, but you don't know the solution, right? Like, Elliot knows he has all this money, and he can use it to help, but the ways he goes about it don't really make much sense but you don't hate him you know you're not like oh you idiot you should do this no you're just kind of like yeah no at least he's trying right right no totally and and you know what i what i to go to the other side of it then when you Mm. when you hear this senator or anyone else describe these people that elliot is helping right Uh, first of all when you find that there's an there's you know and of course you that that you know that there's bumper stickers or little stickers in every phone booth that says you know 
call Elliot Rosewater. He'll help you. And then there's his number and he has a phone (laughs) and he picks it up. And no matter what your problem, he will help you. And I think this was Vonnegut really talking about, um, you know, look, if we want to get into lit theory, this is, you know, you, you could, we could Always. talk. No, I don't ever. No, I, want to, <laughs> I don't really. But what I want to say is, I mean, this is a clear Marxist lens. This is absolutely mm-hmm. socialist, you know, whatever. If you want to look at it that way, I don't know when socialism became a bad word because actually right. I saw a bunch of guys protesting. Um, they, were, they were from a school. They were still in their uniforms and they were standing, I kid you not, on a, on a public Pennsylvania-owned bridge, meaning social social socialism um mm-hmm. on next to a highway socialism on a sidewalk <laughs> socialism holding a sign that said socialism <laughs> equals communism and i was thinking they really need mm. to learn that that actually isn't a synonymous <laughs> word um but read a book <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so like for me these people that elliot was helping you know they were tough too and i think that was one of the cool things that Vonnegut did they weren't just people like um and i don't watch tv but i've seen a few bits and pieces of like you know those shows where they redo the houses for the people who could really use a hand because they've just been through hell yeah Okay, whatever those shows, I, and I always love that moment where the unveiling's there and they're yeah. crying and they're like, oh yeah. my gosh, I can't believe I finally have a house that suits us and yeah. I don't have to worry. And it's a mm-hmm. beautiful thing. And um, Elliot goes, or not Elliot, Vonnegut goes one step further, or Elliot does actually, goes one step further, where he is really just helping people who are desperate on the day. And, right, right. You know, they, everyone has tragedy. Right. Everyone has a small amount of tragedy, at least. Um, and he's and then there's just your everyday problems. It could just be my foot hurts. And he'll be like, OK. Um, and, and then on the on a larger scale, um, I'm, I've just opened up this page because I love it so much. Um, yeah. he, he, Elliot's at a party and um, there's artists there. Uh, uh, Dolly was there. Robert Frost was mm-hmm. there. Arthur mm-hmm. Godfrey was there. And actually, and, and it was Sylvia telling the story, uh, his wife, or his, I guess at least she's still his wife. Um, and, um, and this artist comes up to him and says, says um, Arthur told Elliot he wanted to be free to tell the truth, regardless of the economic consequences. And Elliot wrote him a tremendous check right then and there. It was a cocktail party. <laughs> and all these other people were there. And he said, you go tell the truth. By God, it's about time somebody did. And if you need any more money to mm-hmm. tell more truth... You just come back to me. And it's sort of like... <laughs> to tell more truth. <laughs> like, good God, could I use some Elliot Rosewater in my life right now. But at the, oh, I know. You know, but at the same time, like... So he was helping, you know, like, these people that are really... The people we walk by all the time. Honestly, yeah. that we would... That so often we would judge as, oh, that person's pathetic. Oh, they should do more. Oh, they should... Maybe if they did this, they'd get a job. You know, all these judgments. And this is something I've been really, really, really focused on the last few years that has something mm. to do with the book I'm writing is judgments. And that's the other thing that Elliot is... not. Yeah, he is. He's completely free of judgments. I don't, I don't even know if he judges himself. Um, he just... Yeah, he doesn't judge anyone ever. No. He just looks at them at face value yep. and says, what do you need and how can I give it to you? And that right there is awesome. And then you have the speech by the senator about the toilet paper, which is one of my, the, the sheets of toilet paper. I'm going to find it now because it's one of my favorite bits. Um, because, you know, the senator is made so angry by this. and oh, I hates it. And I think it's because he's a senator and he should be acting that way. But he can't because he got into politics. That's the funny. 
funniest irony. Right. Remember when he gets really, he's really mean to someone and the person's like, why are you being mean to me? I'm the one who votes for you. And the senator's like, you'll vote for me regardless. Yes. Like, it's devastating because he's like, Doesn't, I don't have to be nice to you. And it's, and it, I mean, it's that thing, right? Where it's like individual, individual love and yeah. individual care and attention versus when you try and take care of like a mass group which i guess is what how you could compare elliot and his dad elliot decides to go on a one-on-one mission like someone will call him he will pick up a phone and he will try and help that person whereas i guess (laughs) the senator is voted to take care of an entire population right right Right. um and he has in that way lost the vision of what the individual is correct right he looks at it as a mass yeah he does and and you know, and this is this is this is the beauty of Elliot. Um, and I can't find the toilet paper thing, but I'm still looking. Um, okay, <laughs> you'd think I'd find it, but it's just I love it because it's actually come to me. Like I'll be in my life, and because I live, you know, my mentor was this painter who actually reminds me. He and Vonnegut would have gotten along pretty well, except I think Vonnegut would have been mm. too cynical for him, but. But the one thing I always loved about him um, was that he could talk to anybody of any age without ever talking down to anyone. And that was a big mm-hmm. deal. I was, in my late, I was in my late 20s. A lot of people in their 40s and 50s were saying things like, oh, you two are living off the land. When, that, when is that phase going to end? Or, oh, you got some right. ducks. When is that phase? You know, all that sort of that disrespectful sort of eye rolling, the way we do to teenagers, which is why I write for teens, um, and the way we do to things that teenagers love uh, um, and stuff like this. Um, but Tony was 81 years old, 81 to 89 when I knew him, and he never talked down to me, and he never talked down to an eight-year-old. He never talked down to anybody that way. Mm. And so I went, mm-hmm. oh, I want to be like him. And so part of me always said, you know, well, you know, this is how I really feel. Like, I believe that we're, we all have something to offer, even a five-year-old, sometimes especially a five-year-old. And so... Um, I feel that Elliot has that same sort of thing when it comes to that individual... Um, you know, that individual not judging, you know, Diana Moon glampers for whatever, not judging these these people with these weird names who were doing what we would consider stupid things, the kind of thing that if you were sitting around the TV, right. your mom and dad say, oh my gosh, don't be like them. Um, but, you know, there are people who, you know, who are just can't, who, who can't live in this system and can't succeed in this system. In fact, the whole system is set up to mm-hmm. be, it's broken, it's designed. And I think Elliot, like you said, going back, he sees his privilege. He sees what he's got. He knows he, he's not slurping yeah. in the money river. The, the money just keeps showing up because it makes 10 grand a day. You can't beat that. I found the toilet right. paper thing. Here we go. I found the toilet paper thing. I'm going to set the scene. I'm going to set the scene. <laughs> Let's see. So it's, it's Elliot and his father, who's the <laughs> senator, um, you know, talking about things and let me just make sure this is yeah this is the money river yes 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 he's like uh, i'm gonna paraphrase a few things before and he, and his father says um perhaps if these people stopped believing in a crazy things like the money river and got to work <laughs> they would stop having such a rotten time and elliot says well if there isn't a money river then how did i make ten thousand dollars today just by snoozing and scratching myself and occasionally answering a phone and um you know, the senator says, it's still possible for an American to make a fortune on his own. Mm. And, um, and Elliot says, sure, provided somebody tells him when he's young enough that there is a money river, that there's nothing fair about it, that he had damn well better forget about hard work and the merit system and honesty and all that crap mm-hmm. and get to where the river is. 
Go where the rich and powerful are, I'd tell him, and learn their ways. They can be flattered and they can be scared. Please them enormously or scare them enormously. And one moonless night, they will put their fingers to their lips, warning you not to make a sound, and they will lead you through the dark to the widest, deepest river of wealth ever known to man. Anyway, the, he tells him this whole story. And then the senator cursed. And I love that about Vonnegut. <laughs> I love yeah. that. The senator cursed. What a great sentence. And he, and he says, why did you say that, father? And again, we're looking at an innocent... You're looking at a really innocent guy um, at the age that he is, which I want to get back to. Remind me that I want to talk about age real quick. Um, hmm. But he says, why did you say that, Father? It was a tender question. The senator cursed again. And then he says, I just wish there didn't have to be this acrimony, this tension. Every time we talk, I love you so. There was more cursing, made harsher by the fact that the senator was close to tears. And he's like, why would you swear when I say I love you, Father? And this is what the Father says. You're the man who stands on a street corner with a roll of toilet paper and written on each square are the words, I love you. And each passerby, no matter who, gets a square, all his or her own. I don't want my square of toilet paper. And Elliot comes back with, I didn't realize it was toilet paper. And then, of course, the senator distracts and goes back to until you stop drinking. And I don't really think Elliot has that big of a drinking... I can't yeah. tell. I don't think he's that big of a drinking problem. I think he just drinks He really sometimes. doesn't. He doesn't seem to. I don't to. think he does. They talk about yeah, it a lot. Yeah, I think people but... just, like... Yeah, they just point it out as an, a, an excuse to yeah. try and, like, be like, why is he so crazy? It must be the alcohol. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. And But I, I love that. And, I mean, if you look at my work, so when you go back to, like, yes, does he influence me? Yes. He was the first person who made me realize I wasn't completely crazy. Because I had been right. thinking, and I'm, I'm writing a graphic memoir on this topic, and I'm uh, this is a good conversation mm-hmm. to help me. And this book was good to read for me to be able to mm. understand it. But... Until I read that, like that, I love you, that toilet paper scene, that and and read Vonnegut, mm-hmm. period, and got the vibe of Vonnegut in my system, um, I felt like a loon. I felt like I must be crazy. I didn't. I didn't feel like I belonged right. in America. I hadn't been outside of America. I didn't know why I felt so weird. And I thought, and honestly, I went. I went to join the Peace Corps, and they freaking rejected me. Can you believe what? me? What? Me. Me. <laughs> That's a very, that's kind of, kind of confusing there. <laughs> kind of nuts. I went and made my own Peace Corps. I'm like, fine, I'll move to Ireland, make my own Peace Corps in my own backyard. And I did. I made my own personal Peace Corps and spent 15 years volunteering and living off the land, gardening. And, you know, it was awesome helping people. Yeah. And that was cool. But this was the thing, like this idea that, that you could have a life that to me and my, whatever my soul is, I don't know where it came from. I don't understand squat beyond the earth. That's it. I don't know, understand where we came from, where we go. But I can tell you that whatever it is, well, I like to help people. That's what I'm here to do. And yeah. I'm really glad I was able to, I'm do, able to do it through words. But before then, I, you know, but these, and, and so when I read this, it was just so important to me. He's just such a, you know, again, people would read this. He's just such a socialist. Well, that's true, I guess. But he's just such a kind exemplary beautiful human being yeah i think i i thought a lot when i was reading about the reading the book about like this 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 obsession with like who's crazy yeah right because ultimately it's all bubbling towards elliot being in an like an asylum basically Mm -hmm. um or a rehabilitation clinic because Mm -hmm. people think he's crazy and 
Um, they try and understand his craziness in different ways, like we said, like through alcohol or through this mm -hmm. other thing. Um, but there's this one line that I thought was so interesting, and it's when he's leaving Rosewater and everyone in the town knows he's not going to come back. Yeah. And one of the characters is like kind of stuttering, like not getting to her point, and finally she says... I can't help thinking people are going to think you're crazy for paying so much attention to people like us. Mm -hmm. And that moment to me was really poignant wow. because it, it, it pushes you from thinking, who do we all conceive of as crazy? We, for some reason, think Elliot is crazy. Not just like, not the reader maybe, but like everyone else in the novel thinks Elliot is crazy because all he does is help people with his money. Whereas the norm is to not, right? right? He's crazy because he's not following that norm. And this poor person who, poor in many ways, I don't remember which character she was, but mm. this poor character is devastated <laughs> mm -hmm. that she thinks other people will think he's crazy and and would be right to do so mm -hmm. because all he spends his time doing is helping people like her right and um, that line actually just teared up um i teared up <laughs> because what's can you read the line to me again do you still have it in front of you because i'm looking for it yeah i, I got it it's i can't help thinking people are going to think you're crazy for paying so much attention to people like us now that's why I'm a, uh, that's why I write for teens. There you go. That's why I write that line right there is why I write for teens. And because I've been doing it for this long and people are like, "Well, well yeah, the usual. When are you going to write a real book?" Or this they obviously don't read my <laughs> books because they don't realize they cross over so well, especially the last one. I mean, my god. Yeah. yeah. Um, but almost all of them do and 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 it's this idea that that oh, that's not real then. So what's so it's not the lit. It's not some. It's not some cut at the literature. It's not some cut at your prose. It's not a cut when they're saying it. They're not actually saying it to you or to me. I should say they're saying it to. I'm sure you've heard it too. I mean, you you have always been a champion for for young adult books, and mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure people must ask you dumb questions like that too, or or uninformed questions, or. Now suddenly we're grown ups and we don't really we 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 think that our teen selves are cringy and gross and we don't want to talk about them and we don't want to have anything to do with them, and so they become the Diana Moon Glampers of the mm. world. They become these things, and that's that's why I do what I do because to right. me I care about these people. I, I actually do. They're human beings. <laughs> they're and it's a time frame, so they're not going to be there forever. So right. when I get them in front of me, I remind them that when they're 25, they're going to look down on themselves or, the, or you know, or, and, and that this is how it goes. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's why I write books. Sorry, this made me tear up and I got all funny. I want to talk about age really quickly because I know yes, we don't please. have all day. <laughs> so here's the funny part. If you don't mind me asking, can I ask your age? Are you in your 20s or your 30s? You're in your 20s. I'm 24. You? There you go. You're 24. So that's about the same time I read this book. For the first time. Mm. So I've been talking about Elliot Rosewater to classrooms of kids and, and other people. It's like libraries full of patrons. And when they mm -hmm. ask me the literary crush question, they obviously, most of them don't, haven't heard of this book. Um, and I explained for years, I can't believe this, I used to say it this way, but I used to say, <laughs> he's this old, old kind of unhygienic man, but he is so wonderful. <laughs> and that was great until I started reading the book. And this is the first time I have read 
God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. And Elliot Rosewater is three years younger than me right now in this <gasps> book. Oh, my God. <laughs> Amazing. Did you read him as old? I actually didn't. I figured okay, he was, for some reason, I read him as like 35. Mm. I, don't, I don't know why. Know, it might be because at the beginning, there's like some Hamlet stuff. Yeah. I remember he's like talking yeah. about himself as like maybe a bit of a Hamlet. And yeah. I think of Hamlet as kind of a little bit older than young, but not old yet. Right, exactly. And I don't know why I didn't catch any of that. I've read this book so many times. But like right there on page six, it says Elliot was 46. And I'm like... Oh, I didn't I, even notice. <laughs> I just stopped. And, and it was funny because I just... Um, hold on, 17 years. So he became president of the foundation in 47. And 17 years later... Elliot was 46, so I can't do math right now, but he was in his 20s, obviously. And But I'm yeah. like, 46? I've been imagining Elliot <laughs> Rosewater as kind of this, 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 you know, like somebody that's my dad, not, not necessarily my dad's age, but somebody older than me. And somebody yeah, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. and he was older than me when I read it, but now he's right. younger than no. me. That's, oh, that's I'm, weird. It's really weird. Um, and it definitely made me see it even I don't know, made me feel better then that I was like, oh, like, good, good. Because that I always felt that elderly. And I think maybe that's because Norman Mushari is only, I think, 23 years old, the, the lawyer who's oh, trying right. to, right? Yeah, he just graduated. He did. So he's like, he's really, he's young and, and really hungry. And so he's trying to break up this fortune and he's trying to figure out how to get it away from Elliot. And you're right, from the get-go, the number one thing, because the, Mashari puts it on the page or the, the, um, the narrator puts it on the page, that he is convinced, especially with what he's heard around the office, that he can prove Elliot crazy. And so everybody is trying to prove Elliot crazy to get the money on that side. Yeah. But you're right, everybody else is kind of like looking at him like he's nuts. And and mm-hmm. I've, I have felt nuts my whole life for caring about people. And that, that <laughs> toilet paper scene is I mean it goes back to ask the passengers I mean I I I do leave rocks that say I love you all over town now I, right. I do I leave painted rocks around my town those are that's just your toilet paper <laughs> yep it, it is it, it is. is my <laughs> books are my toilet paper and that's how it goes my every one of my books are every one of them that's the whole point it's like here's a book and hopefully you'll feel better after you'll cry in the middle uh, it's okay but you'll feel better afterwards and that's the point point. that's this book is the reason i do what i do that's why I let, it's my inspiration it's like my handbook so reading yeah. it last week was so important because i gotta get back on the horse and i yeah, gotta it's, it is it's one of those things like whenever I reread Animal Farm, it like resets me. Yeah. It it kind of it helps me reset onto my correct course, right? Like yeah. reprioritize and kind of be like, oh wow, I have become distracted. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's and- been a lot of things that have kind of like muddled what I thought I was doing, but th- it helps me reset. That's great to hear because, and I used to read Breakfast of Champions in order to do this, mm. and I haven't read it in a while. I used to I used to call it my brain survey. So when I'd finish a book, I would kind of just you know I'd, I'd finish writing a book and then I'd read Breakfast of Champions, which mm. is a great story and it's a great book. Um, and funnily enough, I think he opens that one up by saying, "Well, this is like my fiftieth birthday present to myself." And now I'm looking at myself, going, "Really? Hold on, I'm only like I'm about to be fifty. This is so weird." Um, because again, I always saw Vonnegut as so much older than me. But when right. he was writing, he was this age, and and um, so I I'm glad you say that because this definitely was a reset, and it was really important. You know, I'm I'm looking at my desk now, and the difference like two weeks ago, it looked like one thing. Now I've got a productivity journal open. I have blocked out <laughs> this. Amazing. I have four projects sitting here, 
And I'm like, that's how that's how this changed me. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that because that for me is it's when something I well, I can't really go ever very long without quoting George Orwell. Um, but one of my favorite quotations from George Orwell is um, the best books are those that that tell you what you know already. Yeah. And oh, it, I, nice I take that in, in kind of a few different ways, but one of them is when you, you know that feeling when you've always thought something, but you've never actually tried to articulate it, but suddenly you read it and you're like, oh my God, I've always thought that, but I had just never articulated it. Yeah. Um, and somebody else gets it too. That feeling. Yes. Um, That's Vonnegut for me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. That's this book. Um, actually, I... When I was reading this book, it's I didn't know what it was about at all. I didn't even read the synopsis. I was just like, nah, it's her favorite book. I'll give it a shot. Right. Um, and I like Vonnegut, so I didn't think that it, it would be bad in any way. So, But I had no idea it was going to be about money. Right. right. And so I start reading it and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. This is really interesting. I had a few years ago read Keep the Aspidistra Flying by George Orwell. Have you read that book? No, and I'm writing that no. down. What is it called? Keep the Aspidistra Flying. It's okay. in his backlog. It's one nobody talks about. There is a gorgeous edition of it, though, available. Um, okay. But, you know, I love George Orwell, so I like reading... Um, slowly not quickly because i don't they they will run out he's not publishing anymore yeah. <laughs> but like so, slowly reading through his catalog and a couple years ago i read keep the Aspidistra flying and it is about money it is a book about money okay. and essentially it's about this character who hates money and hates money for like a lot of the same reasons that elliot hates money like hates it because he sees what it does to people and but in 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 Aspidistra, he's very poor he hates money because right. he doesn't have any money. He right. hates money because no matter what he does, he never feels like he has enough money and he's poor and he doesn't like where he lives and he can't take his girlfriend out on nice dates. Like, he just hates it. So he one day decides um, that he won't make money anymore. And he lives in London, which is a bold move. Um, and so <laughs> he decides, you know, I'm not going to make money anymore. I'm going to step outside of the economic system and here is a quotation from the book that is kind of you know it's the most quoted one um the mistake you make don't you see is in thinking one can live in a corrupt society without being corrupt oneself after all what do you achieve by refusing to make money you're trying to behave as though one could stand right outside our economic system but one can't one's got to change the system or one changes nothing one can't put things right in a hole and corner way if you take my meaning um it's just it's such an interesting book in i have and to again, read it i really recommend it because i think i don't know i'm I, obviously it's animal farm it's 1984 you're gonna read those first but i oh I i've already read those would, I, i'm no I'm, i no yeah but those, i don't mean you i mean people oh like yes oh, i forgot there's listeners first. i'm like oh yeah <laughs> right there's people yes listening to this. <laughs> no everyone reads reads those first and yes. then you know they move on to other classics but KPS for this flying surprised me because it made me think so much about how, and and I think Elliot runs into this exact problem, for a, a for a time he tries to ignore the economic system in a way. Yes. Like he th kind of secludes himself in Rosewater. He doesn't think about the rest of the country, which we can think of as a type of fault in Elliot's plan. 
mm-hmm. right? Elliot's plan is to go and help Rosewater, mm-hmm. but that doesn't help everyone, right? Like it's 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 a it's a smaller solution to the problem. It still helps some people, so that's really good. But like, it doesn't change the fact that there is poor people everywhere else in America too, right? Right. right. Um, so, but regardless, he's he's trying to help in this way, but you can't actually step out of the economic system unless you are AS Kenyan and you move to Ireland for 15 I years. still had to be but in like, it, though. But, but yeah. that's the thing, right? Eventually you move bit. back. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> um, and the kind of the moral of keep the Espedister flying is, okay, I can't leave the system, but I can be aware of it. And by being aware of it, which I would argue none of the other characters in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater are, Correct. right? Only Elliot really is. By being aware of it, I can try and use that to help as many people as I can. Mm. And, like, I think that that's the lesson in Aspidistra, too. He's like, okay, I can't step out of it. Because at a certain point, like, he can't do anything in London, right? Yeah, he can barely right. afford to eat. He's really just, make, like, eating off of other people's money. So right. he hasn't really escaped it. Um but he ultimately realizes, okay, I can't step out of it completely. But now that I'm aware of it and understand it better, I can work within it to try and live more happily within it. Right, right. So if anyone's looking for another book similar to this one. <laughs> Excellent. No, I, I, I am. So this is good because, and that'll help me with this. I mean, I have this graphic memoir. Like I said, I've been working on it for about three or four years. When I say working on it, I mean talking about working on it. That's really all I mean. And mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. worked a little bit on it. I even have like a picture of one of my favorite fellow faculty members from up at Vermont College. I have a, I'm looking at it right now. There's a picture of her above my, my screen and it, and then it has a little bubble. It says Amy write graphic memoir, but I could I could never like I then I go eh, nobody really wants to see this. And then I read something like God bless you, Mister Rosewater, or it sounds like this Orwell book, and I go, well, it's not so much like let's try it, Amy. Try and see what you're trying to say, and just keep trying to say it because you're not nuts to think this way, and you know you're not some commie weirdo. It's not what you're about, like you know, and you do believe in and respect other people. I'm not asking anybody who's listening to give away their fortune. Not at all. And I'm not right. saying you. I'm not saying that you're a bad person if you don't. What I'm saying is, you should probably notice there's a money river. Um, <laughs> Part one. <laughs> you know, but or not. I mean, maybe that's the point of that existence. All I know is mine, and and that's that's. That's the thing that this book really hit me with is that I have this existence and I don't come from the place he does. He has his existence and he does come from where he comes. And yet I have so much in common with him. Now, would we be able to sit down and have a drink? Actually, I think we would. He's a pretty affable guy. But um, um, could I count on him? No, he is not reliable in a lot of weird ways. Like the way he would, like, did you notice at the end, he and Sylvia were supposed to meet, but of course they don't. Right. Yeah, no, they, they don't. And that, that always really bo- like, bo- like made me sad. It didn't bother me. Because it I, does, yeah. Because poor Sylvia. Sylvia's really interesting. She is. She, <laughs> she feels so guilty, but like doesn't want to deal with it. It's very interesting. <laughs> her first psychiatrist and the whole, and the whole, like basically brainwashing her into believing that it's okay um, to 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 like be the exact opposite and just and just sort of have no um, empathy or whatever it was. I can't. And he had a name for it. I can't remember what it was. But like, and then the fact that she broke. It took. Her, she, she managed the brainwashing for like three years, and then she broke. Yeah. And no, exactly. It's like 
I feel like Sylvia is the definition of cognitive dissonance. Yes, she <laughs> Like, is. she knows that Elliot is doing good. And at some point, she even says it. She's like, Elliot's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, what Elliot's doing... No, no, don't get me wrong. What Elliot's doing is great. We yeah. should all be doing what Elliot's doing. But, like, then the other part of her is like, I don't want to do that. That's exhausting. Right. And I don't want to do that. Paris is more fun. Right. And I don't want to do that. X, X, X reason, right? Like... So it is, it's this, she has a really difficult tension that yeah. she's trying to reconcile and she can't. And some people, actually, everyone, and I think that's the problem, even Elliot is telling her to do what makes her happy. Right. Right? Like, no, don't worry. You don't have to take on the stress. Just do whatever makes you happy. It's okay if just if you just want to go back to Paris and have fun. That's fine. Just go do that. You deserve to be happy. But yeah. she also knows, like, why should my happiness be at the extent of all of the people of Rosewater? Right. It's yeah. it's interesting. I mean, she, yeah, she's a great character. She's a great character. The senator is a great character because, like you said, he turns around. And that last scene where I, I always love that last scene because Elliot's still saying, why are you doing this? I love you. Um, mm. I mean, I think for, for another, like on a totally different side of it, money aside, you know, um, philanthropy aside, all those other things. As a as a father and son story, it's or yeah, really just father and son. Um, it it looks at a familial relationship that's just so so common, so real, mm. so normal, and not just between fathers and sons. It can be between sisters, can be between you know mothers and daughters, whatever. It doesn't matter. But it's this idea that that he doesn't approve. Even right. and 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 he doesn't approve, and he expects that that is going to then change Elliot. The senator doesn't approve, therefore Elliot mm. will get better or do different things, and it's just massively frustrating for him. The same as you know a a, a parent with a child who won't sleep or something. Um, it's just very frustrating for him, and 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 that yet they've done this dance for like forty years, like. He knows Elliot yeah. isn't going to change, <laughs> and 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 yet he's and he he can't change. Although much like Sylvia, though, I think he knows exactly what's going on there. He's worried about the money, yes, but it's only the foundation's money, and that the finding out that there was other money, other places that Elliot wasn't in control of, was important too. This wasn't everything. This was just the foundation's money, um, mm-hmm. and so. You know, I think that deep down, I don't want to say that he wishes he was as benevolent as, as Elliot, but that he he's looking at the end of his career, right? He's just at the end of the book retired from Congress and or is about to retire as a senator and was looking at Elliot and going, you're such a loser. Like, look, like you haven't done anything with your life. But inside, he's kind of like... I, I feel something. He says something. I don't know what it is, but he said, either says it or it's just the way he's saying it, um, that he does understand why Elliot's right. Like, Elliot isn't crazy. He knows damn well Elliot isn't crazy. He's not certifiable crazy. He's not cert- He's not right. crazy enough to lose the foundation. He knows it. Right, right. He knows it. And there's and nobody's really going to be able to prove it because all of that evidence that they've been using, whether it was random mentions of booze or, or how crazy what he does with the money is, that in the mm-hmm. end, he... Defense senator just realizes it, but I think he's, I think he wishes he was soft. But like so many people, they get to a certain age and they cannot change their mind and they cannot change the way they are. And 
I don't know. I thought it was a really interesting family kind of... Um... Yeah, I agree. I agree. The, I thought the relationships were really interesting. Yeah. Um, that leads me to one of my, I guess, final questions here. Was I, I thought it was really interesting... Um, maybe not question more as thought. Um, mm. Mottos. I thought mottos were a thing in this book. Like, what people live by. And yeah. there was kind of three different characters that I saw. One was, and it's like early on in the novel, when we're reading this letter that Elliot is leaving to whoever the next person to inherit will be. Right. Um, and he says that the, the motto for the Rosewaters has basically been, grab much too much or you'll get nothing at all. Versus later when he's talking about um, baptizing these random twins <laughs> that he doesn't uh, want to baptize. Yes. He says, there's only one rule that I know of, babies. God damn it, you've got to be kind. Yeah. So it's kind of like his family's motto versus his motto. And later on, we see Fred's motto. Fred, a random character we haven't even talked about, but like, I mean, it's, it's just such a weird tangent. Um, <laughs> the his, he says, like when he's reading his family history, he says, the question yes. in America should be, is this guy a good citizen? Is he honest? Does he pull his own weight? Yep. And so we see these three different mottos from three different perspectives. Um, and I just, I don't know, I, again, it's not really a question. I just thought it was super interesting to kind of see what is the driving force behind what these people think is right. the most important thing for, I guess, like an American citizen. Right? right. I think so. I mean, but now, I mean, our culture's changed so much that if we even had conversations like this, this would be politically charged. Or be, but yeah, we're oh, just yeah. talking about a book. Um, yeah. And actually, one of the, one of the, I think it also, and this actually touches on Fred. So listeners, listen, we've got Elliot Rosewater. He's got the foundation. You already figured that out. We're in the spoiler <laughs> section, so we're good. But the, <laughs> remember how, I'm, I'm just talking to listeners, not you so much, Ariel. Um, but like, so the, the, the kind of young lawyer wants to get his hands on this money. And what he wants to do is he wants to give it to the one relative, another Rosewater who lives in Rhode Island. And so we, partway through the book, you're, you're like in a huge chunk of this yep. other guy his name's Fred Rosewater you're in his life right <laughs> and what the coolest thing about this was to me was and the, the idea for the lawyer is that this guy's going to be so shocked at this amount of money that basically a lawyer can just take half of it and that's kind of right. the whole that's set up in the first few pages but anyway so one of the my favorite parts Ariel of of Fred's story and I think it, this is where it gets into manhood and it gets into what mm. a man is um, and do you remember the scene? I'm looking for it now because I know I have it marked and I'm not sure why I can't find it. But the part, there's that fisherman. where uh, Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and his name's yeah, Harry. Yeah, he's fishing with his two sons. Right, so so all the rich people sit in this restaurant and Harry and his two sons go out twice a day to pull the nets. And they're the only fishermen, really, and they bring in the fresh seafood for the restaurant. And the people yeah. in the restaurant actually have opera glasses and watch... Yeah. People work like that's that's <laughs> ironic. And, what a nice little surrealist oh, kind of thing. We just sit here and watch people work while we eat fish, and it's violent, bloody yeah, work, yeah. right? Yeah. But so anyway, so so Fred is an insurance salesman, and he's sitting there this one day, and um, and Harry comes in, of course, and Harry is for all you know intents and purposes at this point a real man compared to what right. Fred feels that he is, because he's just an insurance salesman, as he's con you know as far as he's concerned. And he's sitting there looking at the page three girl or whatever, and he says, um, he just thinks that manhood comes out of him. And he, and he, and he, <laughs> he, he nudges ha Harry, the fisherman, and he says, um, 
He says, hold on, I, I found it. So I have to read it now, mm. just because I know we're, I know we're yes, ending. Please. I know you have a few more questions, no, but no, I just good, doesn't stop it. <laughs> so, um, so that, like, at first he's kind of saying to Fred, like, why do you even do that insurance stuff? Because Harry used to do insurance, but anyway, it doesn't right. matter. So he sees the paper, and, um, and he says, what do you think of that girl there, Harry? Right? And, and so he's looking at the picture of the bikini girl in the thing, and he goes, like, what? He's like, that girl there. And Harry says, that's not a girl. That's a piece of paper. <laughs> and that looks like a girl to me, Fred Rosewater leered. Then you're easily fooled, said Harry. It's done with ink on a piece of paper. That girl isn't lying there on the counter. She's thousands of miles away, doesn't even know we're alive. If this was a real girl, all I'd have to do for a living would be to stay home and cut out pictures of fish. And this, to me, was one of the most feminist statements. I laughed out loud on that one. I laughed out loud on that one. And then he echoed it. He echoes it, like, maybe 15 pages later. I can't remember what he says, but it was just great about cutting out pictures of something. And I can't remember what he said. But but for me, it was just such a feminist and such a, like, like... Yeah, all this is great, and and we're in a different place, right? Because so, over here is Elliot and the whole money and the people calling on the phone, but over here is Fred in, in Rhode Island, and he's dealing with this sort of manliness and, and this sort of, uh, like, this epic dude like Harry who's just going to say that. And, yeah. and it actually inspired a hell of a poem. Um, that oh, I, wow. I came off of it just, just realizing that, because, you know, that idea of a two-dimensional person and, and how many women... L- are really leading those lives because we are not seen as three-dimensional um mm. you know so often in our in our lives um and it just it was perfect for me it was it just hit me at the right time loved that mm. so that i'll just I throw a little it. out there for listeners just that's what fred was about and yeah and fred, i mean fred was. was such a bizarre character oh, was great. and i he was so interesting and it was exactly like you said it was this thing where i started reading and i was like oh, okay we're learning a bit more about the history of this random family i'm sure we're about to switch back to elliot <laughs> and then it's like 70 pages of fred and i'm like all right well now I care about Fred <laughs> uh, for me oh, and I, I won't be able to find it now but it was like I love this passage with Fred where he <laughs> he finds the book yes um that his that his dad had written and yeah I really want to find it but like it, it he finds this book that his dad has written that which is the history of his family which is and fascinating and he starts, yeah, and he starts reading through the family's history. And I wonder, okay, I think maybe I've written down what page it was on. Um, 144. Let's see. Do I have it here? Yes. Okay, yes. So he's reading, he's reading it to his wife. And he's kind of like, listen up, wife. This is what we're going to do now. We're going to read this history together. And he says... Um, no more apologies. So we're poor. All right, we're poor. This is America. And America is one place in this sorry world where people shouldn't have to apologize for being poor. Yes. Fred hoisted the manuscript in his two plump hands, threatened poor Caroline with it. The Rhode Island Rosewaters have been active, creative people in the past and will continue to be in the future. Some have had money, some have not, but by God, they've played their parts in history. No more apologies. Uh, Caroline, do you know what it says over the door of the National Archives in Washington? (laughs) No, she admitted. The past is prologue. Oh. (laughs) All right, said Fred. Now, let's read this story of the Rhode Island Rosewaters together and try to pull our marriage together with a little mutual pride and faith. (laughs) It kills me. It kills me. It's It's so good. 
It's so good. But like, I just, I love this. First of all, I love a gorgeous line. The past is prologue. Mm. That hit me. Um, but again, this idea that like, I love that he's like, some of our ancestors have been poor. Some of them have been rich, but we all have pride, right? We're yeah. all, we can all trudge forward. And it, that line made me think a lot of something my dad has always said to me. Um, kind of, he says it to our family at New Year's once we've had, especially when we've had a difficult year, which mm. everyone has. Um, but he'll say to my family, he says, we have been rich. No, yeah, we have been rich and we have been poor and we will be rich again and we will be poor again, mm. but we will pull through it. And that always, I think about that a lot. My dad's always said that we will be rich again and we will be poor again, mm. but we will pull through it. Um... I don't know. It's just, I love that line. And I love this idea that like, just be your ancestors, they've been rich and they've been poor and it will all happen again. Yep. But you'll pull through it. And it's funny because like on a larger level, cause I'm a generation kind of stress and how reader. And I look at generations and, and I think a lot about like, I'm allegedly the 13th American generation, which means my daughter downstairs, mm. she's the 15th. And, and I've been looking a lot at the 15th uh, generation, just kind of how different their lives are and whatnot. But the same can be said of generations, right? Because if you go with Strauss and Howe, there is a, there's like a, um, I can't remember, they have specific names and I, they're just completely gone from my head. But if I had time, I'd reach <laughs> right over there and grab the book, but I don't. But there's like, there's, they go in groups of four. So you have your sort of your cons- very conservative time. You have a tumultuous time. You have a, a party time and then you have a recovery time you know recovery that's a very bad paraphrasing of anyone okay. listening who knows stress and how sure. will be rolling their eyes when she doesn't know anything about stress and how but i swear i do which is my mind is full of weird other things right now but but it's the same isn't it like our generations here anyway and, I, and when i think about Vonnegut, i really do think about america i mean he was a humanist and mm-hmm. he was really i mean look he he survived the firebombing of dresden this man right. ha- this saw so he collected the bodies. Um, he mm. he was in war and 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 that unless you've been in it, you don't know what that's like. And and to have this is one of the things that that, that scares me and, and upsets me about our present political climate is that that just because someone like Kurt is a humanist and would be a liberal in the in in, in mm-hmm. these you know in these terms, then then he's one to be put down. Because I guess his sacrifice wasn't as big as the conservative soul. Nobody did that then, and 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 it started to happen as he got older. I mean, some of his old, his, some of his, his last books were just like, um, you know, "Man Without a Country." I mean, that was mm. what I don't even know when that was. It was the early two thousands. He yeah. already felt like that then, and I'm I'm really glad he's not having to see what's happening now to America mm, because he was quite a patriot and quite a quite a, a thinker and and and. This book to me it really represents. I don't know, it just represents so much. It represents. It kind of represents a utopia to me, except for the parts that aren't utopian. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, there's that whole interesting subplot line with the writer that yes. Elliot's obsessed with, who does Kil- write utopias, yeah, right? Yeah, Kilgore Trout. Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, and Trout shows up in all of his work, almost all of it. Which, so. Yeah, I think that's so cool. It's fun. Um, so you said you had other questions. So before we go, yeah, I didn't know if so, you had any well, others. Well, thank you for chatting with me about God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. I had such a good time reading it, and um, I've loved learning about your thoughts about it. I really, truly did love this book. I'm so um, glad. But I got some 
view or some listeners, I was going to say viewers. No, they can't see us. Um, some listeners submitted questions that they wanted to ask you about writing. Okay. Um, and so I thought I'd give you a few questions. Do it. Uh, short, you, you know, short answers. Don't worry no about writing a novel here. Um, Buy Books asks a question that a lot of people asked. So I thought I should ask, do you write with an outline or not? Definitely not. I write by the seat of my <laughs> pants and I only... Um, and it's no, no offense to people who do. Um, I have kind of sometimes somewhat plot out my novels and it never works. Um, but no, I have <laughs> never written that way. I, I, and this is going to sound like my brain's made of granola. Um, but I completely follow my characters. My character will tell me what's going on. And in the first few pages, almost every hint I need is there. If mm. I'm lost and they're not talking to me, I'll follow a hint. Um, but that is one of the reasons why my books are the way they are, I think, because I absolutely know. I don't even know. Every day I come to the to the keyboard, I don't know what's happening that day. So if you get a surprise in your reading, I got the same surprise while I was right. writing it. Um, and then revision is everything, obviously, with a process like that. But no, I don't mm. outline for the most part. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a purist, weirdo pantser, but I have done, I've done a little bit of forethought um with certain books it depends but nope don't have any idea how they end until they do um that makes me happy because that's how i write <laughs> i have no idea i don't know i sit down to do an outline and i get bored and i'm like but writing is fun right. and then i'm like i'll just write i'll just write it's, yeah. it'll turn out fine well, that's um it. jabberwocky 93 asks how do you balance the magical and the realistic she mentioned that she really wants to write books like your books and that she wants to be able to balance those properly. Well, these are the sorts of questions that are tough for a pantser like me and because I don't go yeah. for the balance as much as the, I think the, the idea for me when I put any surreal elements in um, or when they show up is that they, they show up on purpose. Um, so um, during usually during a traumatic event, uh, or a reliving of a traumatic event. I do write a lot about trauma. Trauma mm -hmm. is the center of um, a lot of the work I do out in the community as well. So um, I would say, you know, when a character needs to es not necessarily escape, I mean, it's really not that simple. Sometimes it can just be their unconscious mind that needs to escape. Um, and so it's like in the middle of not necessarily a traumatic moment, but it's traumatic for them because they're reliving it. Those are those places, that's where they tend to go. I mean, how to mix it is up to you. But for me, the reason it works so well in young adult fiction is because being a teenager is very surreal considering a lot of the world looks down on you for absolutely no reason other than the fact that you, <laughs> your age starts with a number one. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, and it's a surreal time. It's a coming of age, which is surreal enough. It's a surreal time as in, in this culture, what? That's crazy enough. Um, you know, and, and, and times change and it's scary and there's a lot more, there's a lot more going on. So I don't know how to answer that question other than wherever it comes naturally. Try it. Don't yeah. force it. That's, the, I guess that's the best thing I can say. Don't force it. Mm. Um, another question, well, similar question that I got a lot was and maybe you've already answered this i'm sure but any original handles left ask what is one thing about publishing you wish you knew about publishing when you were starting out um well i know about as much about publishing um as i did when i was just starting out um <laughs> perfect <laughs> so i wish i knew not to care much about it um, I was really lucky mm. in a way. I, I wrote for 15 years without getting published. Um, I wouldn't consider getting 500 rejections over 10 years lucky. But at the same time, I'm really glad I did because A, I didn't get immediate um, 
satisfaction. <laughs> I got right. real frustrated. I knew I had to get better. I knew I had to continue working. But then once I did get published, um, my expectations were not high. And I'm really glad for that. And they never have mm. been. And I'm really glad for that. Because it keeps changing, too, like everything else. So, like, trends will go. Like, certain certain markets sell a lot. Certain markets don't sell a lot. And it all, that all moves like anything else. But for the most part... Nothing has changed in me as a writer. I'm still considering. I, I, I've had to always ground myself in the fact that I'm doing something artistic, um, even if it has a deadline. Right. And and so for me, if I mm-hmm. the thing I the wish I wish I knew the most was to not pay not pay much attention to it, um, including yeah. like I I haven't looked at and this is no I love that people go to Goodreads and and those other sites Amazon whatever and leave reviews. It's wonderful. I'd never ask for someone to do that for me. But I love that people do that. I, I used to track my books on Goodreads all the time. But once mm. I started publishing, I knew the best thing for me was to not go. And I know the day I quit, it was April 10th, 2010. That's when I can tell <laughs> That's the last time I looked at Goodreads. I won't, and, it's, and I yeah. love that people go there. And I love how sweet and how intelligent, how great. And yes, people send me, you know, secret. You have to see this screenshot of a good, you know, review just to, I guess, right. you know, that's, but for the most part, yeah, not to care that much about it, to care only about what you want to say. Here's my mentor's, um, more, one of his more famous sayings, um, and it's on actually etched on his gravestone. It's never be swayed by anything, but by your own work and vision. Nowhere in that sentence was publishing mm. or money. Right. <laughs> no, and uh, and or and yeah, and to link it back to the book, right? Mm-hmm. Or money. Or money. I, and I, I I agree. I I have not published anything. So what am I saying? But in my time in this world, oh, yeah, I do been... see a lot of people get distracted by the worry of getting published, right? Like Yeah. And and it's interesting. I think it is one of those things where you can try and master it and it's good obviously to know about the field that you're working in. Yes. But like people will literally spend so much time worrying about querying and finding an agent and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that they don't finish their book. I would always say when people ask me stuff like that, I'm like, step one, finish it. You have to finish it. And that's what I say to myself. That's what I say to myself, right? Like, I'm like, Ariel, you're not allowed to think about any of this stuff until you finish something you're really dumb proud of and you want to share. That's the one. It has to be the best. I mean, then so many people are like, well, I'm going to finish this draft. So I'll send it then. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You got to leave it sit three months. And then come back right. to it and then try and cut 20% of it out. What do you think? And they look at you like you're, they're, you're crazy. I'm like, I swear, in three months, you will see 15 to 20% that can just go. Right. And that's important. Um, and that's, it's, it's, it's the most important skill, I think, in writing um, is revision. And so, mm. um, yeah. So, I mean, yes, you have to care about it. Absolutely. And you definitely want to educate yourself on it. But to this day, I actually had a royalty statement today. I can kind of understand it. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but what does it really matter? I used to save every one. I used to put them in a filing cabinet. I used to do all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Like that part of it doesn't matter. I don't care that I sold 12 copies of X book in Canada between June and December right. last year. I could give a crap. <laughs> Those were all me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ariel. Thanks so much. Um, but like, you know, that's the thing, you know, I like... It's not that I don't give a I very much do. I wish it was a higher number, I guess. But I mean, yeah. my publisher's job, and that's the one thing. Like, if if right, if somebody ever sat me down at a board table and said, "Well, Amy, you know the sales aren't great," I'd be like, I would probably go, oh, "Quick, get the sales team in here," because that has <laughs> nothing to do with me. Does it say salesperson yeah. on my chest? No, it does not. I am an author. Right. I yeah. clearly a smart ass, but whatever. <laughs> well, I hope that helps out some people who asked and anyone who's listening. 
Thank you so much for joining me on uh, on my podcast. I love talking about books, and I, I love talking about books with cool people. So this awesome. has been really fun. I love talking about books, and you're so good at it because you're so practiced. I usually read a book and shut up. So this was really cool. <laughs> oh. I, all um, I do is talk more and more about it. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for encouraging me, A, to reread this book um, so that we could do this podcast. B, hey, to do yeah. the reading rush because I read more books in one week than I've read Aww. in months. Thank you. That makes me so happy. That's so happy. So um, happy. And, um, um, and yeah, um, you know, I'm not Michelle Obama, but this was fun. <laughs> <laughs> no comment no comment um speaking of self-promotion i am going to promote your books because i love your books um this year you have two out because you're spoiling us um dig and the year we fell from space dig is out now the year we fell from space is coming out in october um so if anybody wants to check them out i was gonna say go to goodreads because that's where i go but like what is Do your website? go to goodreads yeah, no, go to goodreads.com yeah, just yeah, as as dash king dot com. You can just Google as king; it comes up. But dude, no, go to Goodreads. Like I said, I used to love that. I used to log my reads. I used yeah, to do all yeah. that stuff, it, and it's a great site. Um, but yeah, I it just is. it's yeah, it. I just knew it wasn't good for me. That's all. It's I personal. mean, yeah, from the author perspective, that's different. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, um, totally. yeah, definitely look up her new books. And my favorite book of yours is Everybody Sees the Ants. Mm-hmm. I can't get over that book. Yeah. <laughs> I think about those ants. Um, so if anybody wants to check out one, I recommend that one. Um, but yeah, thank you again so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. Awesome. Bye. Thanks, Ariel. Bye. Bye.